7th of July 1986, Kevin John Barlow and Brian Jeffrey Shergold Chambers are escorted to the gallows at Pudu Prison, Kuala Lumpur, after being sentenced to death for drug trafficking. Despite appeals from as high up as the Australian Prime Minister Bob Hawke, Barlow and Chambers would be the first Westerners to hang under Malaysia's new tough drug laws. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. I would just like to say at the start that in researching this, I had to wade through an enormous amount of bullshit and conflicting reports. And as I have already alluded to in the intro, the two guys that could tell us the truth about what really happened are dead. So tonight I will bring you the story of Barlow and Chambers. They were the first Westerners to be executed in Malaysia under their new tough drug laws that meant a mandatory death penalty for anyone trafficking or possessing more than 15 grams of a narcotic, especially heroin. So this was a clear warning to anyone who wanted to gamble their life by trafficking drugs in or out of Malaysia. Still there will always be people willing to try. And it was so for Brian Jeffrey Shergold Chambers, sometimes known as Jeff Chambers and sometimes Brian. He was born 1957 in Perth, Western Australia. He was a seasoned drug user and trafficker who made drug runs several times from Malaysia. He would bring heroin in secreted inside his body. He would swallow some of it and stick the rest up his ass. Once, by using this method, he was searched in transit at Singapore, where customs officials found two small vials of heroin in his jacket pocket, but he was able to bribe the custom officials and they let him go. The other main character of this story is Kevin John Barlow who was born in 1957 at Stoke-on-Trent in England. He moved with his family to Australia and was a bit of a handful in his youth, spending several stints in juvie. He had tattooed on his forearm, I hate cops, and it was said he had a permanent snarl. But there were two more players in this sad story that I need to tell you about. The first one was Sicilian-born Paul Massari. Born in 1949, Massari, who immigrated with his family to Perth, Western Australia when only two, was only 12 years old when he first came to the attention of law enforcement. By the age of 14, he finally gave up on a formal education after being expelled again from school. In Perth, he frequented illegal gambling dens at Northbridge, the Il Trovatore, and another place called Ginger's. To feed his gambling addiction, he turned to crime, 
and would become a big crime fish in a very small pond that was Perth. One of his first major scams was a smash repair shop he opened to process stolen cars that would be shipped onwards to the eastern states. Eventually, he started importing heroin from Asia's Golden Triangle using drug mules to bring it in. The other major player was John Archer, born in 1945 in Trieste, Italy. He spent his first 10 years in Malta until his father abandoned him and he lived on the streets, organising hookups between sailors and the, and the local good-time girls. Eventually, he found himself in Fremantle, Western Australia. Eventually, he ended up in Sydney, where he worked for a local underworld figure and brothel owner, Joseph Borg. In 1968, he was one of the bodyguards who fled when Borg was murdered in a car bombing in Bondi. After being in and out of prison for break-and-enter and and domestic violence convictions, he went to Perth, where he would meet and become the new right-hand man to Paul Massari. So we have Paul Massari as one of the main crime bosses in Perth, with John Archer as his main man. Now Jeff Chambers was their top courier, bringing in heroin from the Golden Triangle by the kilo. In early 1983, Massari and Asha sent a courier to meet Chambers in Malaysia to pick up two kilogram or four pounds of heroin, but Chambers was instructed to steal 179 grams or six ounces of it and bury it under a tree on Ferengi Beach in Penang. Months later, Chambers, now back in Perth, was instructed to go back to the beach in Penang to dig it up and bring back the stolen heroin. For this, they required a drug mule, and Asha, while visiting his girlfriend, Debbie Collier-Long, got to know her boarder, Kevin Barlow. Now, Barlow had moved to Perth to try and start a new life after all the troubles he'd had in South Australia. While working a construction job, Barlow was injured. It was a very bad groin injury. He had very little money and was unable to work doing manual labour, which was all he was really qualified to do. Barlow was drinking alcohol and smoking pot most of the time and had recently broken up with his girlfriend, so he became very depressed. Asha offered Barlow an opportunity to earn $6,000 and to be sent to Malaysia to have a holiday. Barlow, of course, was interested as $6,000 was a lot of money back in 1983 and to get a holiday at the same time, well, let's just say he was very interested. Asha told him he would be flown to Singapore where he would then travel to Malaysia, where he would have a contact meet him, give him a package of heroin, and all he had to do was bring it back to Australia. Sounds easy. Barlow was very interested, so Asha organised a meeting between him and Chambers so that Chambers could approve Barlow 
as the drug mule. Although some reports say that Chambers did not meet Barlow before the operation and that they actually met while both had worked on a building site months before. Chambers as a building contractor and Barlow as a welder. As Barlow was boarding at Debbie Collier Long's house, who I said before was Arsh's girlfriend, they would often discuss the drug run in front of her and her brother-in-law, Trevor Lawson. So if we are to believe that Chambers had the chance to approve Barlow, then yes, he and plans were made to retrieve the previously stolen 179 grams of heroin buried at the beach in Penang. The plan was that Barlow would fly to Singapore from Perth while Chambers would fly in via Sydney so that they would not be seen as knowing each other and this would help conceal their intentions. Once they were in Singapore, they were instructed to meet and then travel separately to Kuala Lumpur and then onwards to Penang. However, they disobeyed this instruction and not only travelled together, but they shared hotel rooms. Hmm. So they hang out for a few days in Singapore before, before they fly to Kuala Lumpur on the 29th of October 1983 and book into the Fortuna Hotel. During this time, Barlow was starting to get nervous about doing the job, but Chambers told him it was too late to back out and that he should relax, as it would go smoothly if he would just settle down. Anyway, they got to Penang on November the 4th, and while there, Chambers brought a maroon suitcase which had combination locks on it. So once in Penang, Chambers and Barlow went north to Ferengi Beach, where Chambers dug up the previously hidden heroin, and they went back to their hotel room in Penang. Now, the next bit is a little unclear. In order to get back to Australia, they were going to catch a plane from Penang's Bayan Lepus International Airport. However, there were no direct flights from here to Australia, so they would have had to fly to either Kuala Lumpur International or Singapore's Changi Airport. If they were going via KL then this flight would have been a domestic flight and therefore they would not have had to clear customs. If, however, they were going to Singapore, they would have had to go through customs. Now what I think was supposed to happen was that Chambers would fly to Singapore and Barlow to KL. And I'll go into my theories a little later about this. Anyway, before they would do any of that, they needed to hide the heroin. Previously, the drug mules would swallow condoms with heroin and stick the other condoms up their bum. So they had 179 grams of heroin. Now, to describe how much that is, imagine an empty toilet roll. If you blocked off one end and filled it with heroin, that would be about 100 grams or 3 ounces. So they had almost twice that amount. 
reasonably easy for one person and certainly two people to swallow or stick up their butthole. So Barlow and Chambers now have the heroin they dug up from the beach. They are travelling and staying together against instruction from their boss and are in the hotel getting ready to leave. Barlow had become more nervous by the day over doing the drug run and his groin injury was becoming unbearable, probably because the heat, the stress and all the walking round he'd been doing while in Singapore and Malaysia. As I said before, they were to hide the heroin by swallowing it and sticking it up the ring hole. Now, how many different words can I come up for anus tonight? It's like the Inuit people have 50 different words for snow. But anyway, what does happen is this. It's the 9th of November, 1983. Chambers and Barlow are in the hotel, ready to leave for the airport. The heroin is placed in a small blue toiletries bag and placed inside the maroon suitcase. Chambers and Barlow get a taxi together from the hotel to Penang's Bay and Lepers International Airport. Once they arrive, they are observed by security getting out of the taxi together. Now, remember, their boss has said, don't be seen together, don't travel together, don't stay together. So what do they do? They're getting a taxi together to the airport. Now, you can see where this is going. Chambers is carrying one bag and Barlow is carrying the maroon suitcase that Chambers had brought previously. Now, two Western guys travelling together in Penang, will they stick out like dog's balls, especially when one of them, Barlow, is sweating profusely, shivering, and overall, he's looking nervous. On entering the airport, Barlow bypasses the luggage x-ray scanner and goes to check-in, while Chambers puts his bag through the scanner. All the while, they are being observed by the security guard that saw them arrive. This guard goes up to Chambers and asks to see his passport. All seems to be fine at this point. The guard then goes across to the shivering, nervous and sweating Barlow and asks him for his passport. It is at this time that security detain not only Barlow to check out his bags, but they also decide to take Chambers in to check him as well as they were seen arriving at the airport together. They they are taken to an interview room and Chambers' bag is searched. When they go to open Barlow's suitcase, it's locked. Barlow is asked to unlock it, but says he can't as it's not his suitcase and he doesn't know the combination. He tells security that it is Chambers' bag and that he's only carrying it and that Chambers is in fact carrying his bag. Chambers then unlocks it and when the heroin is found inside the smaller blue bag, he says that he did not know the contents of that bag 
and had no idea where it came from. They are handcuffed and taken downtown. Okay. So now I want to analyse what went down here a bit because it doesn't seem right according to all the media reports I could find. Okay, so Chambers is the guy in charge and Barlow is the mule. As the amount of heroin was only 179 grams, I reckon that Barlow was going to be the only one who was going to have the drugs on him. Now with all previous drug runs, the heroin was to be digested and stuffed in the butt. It was reported that Barlow was so disgusted with this that he refused to do it and that is why it was being carried in the suitcase. What I believed happened was that Barlow was to get a domestic flight to Kuala Lumpur from Penang and this is why he could bypass the x-ray scanner. He would then get to KL and here he would wait until he was given the combination for the suitcase and then he would digest the bags of heroin and stick the rest in his anus. At the same time, Chambers, who did put his bag through the scanner because he was going on board an international flight, would fly to Singapore and then on to Australia. Of course, when he landed in Singapore, he would then contact Barlow and give him the combination of the suitcase locks. As they were not to be travelling together, this is the only theory that makes sense. I also think the only reason they were travelling together at all is because this was Barlow's first drug run and he was freaking out about doing it and could likely back out or ditch the drugs. So Chambers had to babysit him through it for as long as he could, and this is why Barlow didn't have the combination for the suitcase as well. It doesn't make sense that they were going to travel together at this point with the heroin inside a toiletry bag in the locked suitcase. I also think Chambers had a false sense of security after doing so many runs in the past. I really think that he thought that if anything went wrong, that he would be able to bribe his way out of it as he had done in the past. He had to stay relatively close to Barlow, at least until they got on planes out of there. Especially because Barlow had apparently been using heroin over the last few days and was becoming extremely nervous. Chambers is reported to have called Asha and told him that Barlow was losing it and they should maybe abort the mission. But Chambers was told no, he had to proceed. There is another report and this is shown in the movie Dada is Death, which you can find on YouTube, that they had purchased a ghetto blaster and were going to transport the drugs inside of it, but decided to wait until they got to KL to do this. And yes, like I said, have a look at Dada is Death on YouTube. Now, this is the story of Barbara Barlow and her struggle to save her son from the gallows. So, they are charged with possessing over 15 grams of a narcotic, which, if found guilty, carried a mandatory death sentence 
as per the new drug laws in Malaysia. They were held in remand until their trial, which started on the 17th of July 1986, so around 18 months from when they were first arrested. And if you see what type of conditions the jails in Penang were like, they were old, dirty, overcrowded, rife with heroin and corrupt prison officials. Which, of course, when you're facing drug charges, it's pretty hypocritical to be held in a place full of drugs. Now, I'd just like to say in regards, not so much to the death sentence, but to mandatory sentencing. The problem with mandatory sentences is that they take away from the judge the ability to pass down a sentence that he sees fit, he or she sees fit for the crime. In death sentence cases, this really is a problem. Now, this court would not have a jury to decide guilt. When there are mandatory death sentences for crimes and there is a jury deciding on the case, you can get to the stage where the jury thinks the defendant is guilty but do not believe the sentence of death is appropriate. They then may find the defendant not guilty so that the penalty of death is not handed down. If the judge had discretion in sentencing, then they may well decide to find the defendant guilty. Now, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, Barlow and Chambers were facing the death penalty and originally they were to be both defended by Rashia Rajasingham. However, Barlow would end up being defended by Karpal Singh, apparently as Barlow's parents had no money for a lawyer and Karpal had a reputation for defending the little man and was called a friend to the oppressed and marginalised. The problem with this is that Chambers would have an advantage as his lawyers had interviewed Barlow and himself, whereas Barlow's lawyer, Karpal Singh, did not have the benefit of talking to Chambers. Now, this would be important, but maybe in the end, it didn't really matter, as you'll see. So the trial started the 17th of July, 1985, at the High Court of Penang. Chambers was led into court in handcuffs while Barlow was not cuffed as he was using crutches because of his groin injury. Both Chambers and Barlow would claim that the drugs found in the suitcase belonged to the other. Both lawyers tried to discredit the customs officials involved and bring some reasonable doubt about the evidence that was produced. Of course... Each of the defendants were blaming the other and it was soon clear that the best outcome would be that only one of them would be spared the hangman's noose. Now at this stage, this saga has been playing out for nearly two years. So you can imagine the stress on the families of Barlow and Chambers. Their loved ones have done the wrong thing And of course, heroin is a nasty drug that ruins the lives of many people and causes deaths. But for the amount they were trafficking, they would probably only get a short prison sentence in Australia, not the death penalty. 
So you have to feel for the families. They are the innocent victims in all of this. So in the end, as I said, the best outcome would be for one of the accused, Barlow or Chambers, to change their not guilty plea to guilty and say that they were solely responsible for the heroin that was found in the suitcase and to do this in order to save the other. The problem is, there's zero incentive to do this. If you keep with your not guilty plea, there is a chance you will be found not guilty and walk free. If you change your plea to guilty, you die anyway, as the death penalty is mandatory. So both Barlow and Chambers persisted with their defence that the heroin was the other's and that they knew nothing about it. Of course, 30-odd years after the event, we know that both of them were involved, that they knew what they were doing, and they knew the risks. They were not under any duress to make the drug run, and they did it of their own free, stupid will. The prosecution argued that as Barlow's and Chambers arrived together, travelled together, and were leaving together, that they had common purpose of trafficking together and that the verdict should reflect reflect that. So, on the 24th of July 1985, Barlow and Chambers are found guilty. The sentence was delayed for a week to allow the lawyers to prepare submissions for the obvious appeal. Also, Karpal Singh, Barlow's lawyer, submitted to the court that his client should be allowed to return to Australia to have an operation on his badly injured groin and pelvis. On the 1st of August 1985, Barlow and Chambers attended their sentencing hearing to learn they had received the death sentence by hanging. An Australian reporter asked Chambers as he was leaving the courthouse, How does it feel, Jeff? How does it feel? Chambers replied, How do you think it fucking feels, you idiot? Remember at the start of the story how I told you about how Barlow was boarding at Debbie Collier Long's house who was Asha's girlfriend and that they would often discuss the drug run in front of her and her brother-in-law Trevor Lawson? Well, apparently Trevor tipped off Australian Federal Police who in turn tipped off their Malaysian counterparts. Now, this is not on when it comes to sharing information with countries that have the death penalty. What they should do is let the drug runners enter Australia and then pick them up when they arrive and deal with them under Australian law. There is evidence that three or four Penang drug dealers had been detained and interrogated about Chambers' movements before they got arrested. So, there was the appeal. Barlow and Chambers sought the appeal against the original sentence on the grounds that the original trial judge had drawn unwarranted inferences from circumstantial evidence and had erred on several points. Other arguments of the appeal revolved around the credibility of the arresting officer's testimony 
and questions of whether Barlow and Chambers acted with a common purpose in trafficking of the drugs. On the 15th of December 1985, Barlow's and Chambers were transferred from Penang to Pudu Prison in KL. Barlow still professed his innocence. The appeal started on the 16th of December and Chambers was represented by Perth lawyer Ron Cannon while Barlow was represented again by Karpal Singh, assisted by Melbourne barrister Frank Galbally. Galbally and Karpal had a huge public argument as Galbally tried to put the case that Barlow was searched illegally and that his shivering and nervousness was not cause enough to be searched at the airport, and thus the evidence should be inadmissible. However, Karpal was quick to tell Galbally that in Malaysia, police had a lot more powers to stop and search than they did in Australia, and that Barlow's medical condition had been raised in the original trial. After the argument, Singh walked off, warning Galbally not to criticise Malaysia's British-based legal system or suggest Australia's was any way superior. The next day, Galbally would apologise and piss off home. The appeal court on the 18th of December 1985 upheld the trial judge's decision to invoke the death penalty because the amount of the drug carried was in excess of the 15-gram cut-off point used to distinguish users from traffickers. On his return to Australia, Galbally suggested that Barlow would have been found not guilty had the medical evidence he wanted to introduce been admitted by the court. The evidence he wanted heard at the appeal was that Barlow had a nervous shake and the prosecution had used Barlow's shake at the time of his arrests as grounds for his guilt. Really, I think it would have been far better for the Aussie lawyers and barristers to have stayed away from Malaysia, as all they did was piss them off trying to make out that Aussies are far more superior than their Malaysian counterparts. So... There were appeals from all over the world to the Malaysians not to hang Barlow's and Chambers. The Australian Prime Minister Bob Hawke and the Minister for Foreign Affairs uh, Bill Hayden protested the death penalty to the Malaysians. But funny enough, little asshole Johnny Howard, the opposition leader at the time, refused to condemn the death penalty, saying that There are due processes of law in that country. Anybody who goes overseas and gets involved in drug trafficking does so with their eyes open. That's my best Johnny Howard. Anyway, there was a joint letter from Barbara Barlow and Sue Chambers, the mothers, to the king of Malaysia, Sultan Iskandar, pleading for their lives. He didn't care. British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and even the Pope was contacted by Barlow's and Chambers' family in a vain bid for mercy in order to save their loved ones. But Malaysia's Prime Minister, Mahathir Mohamad, was unmoved and determined to make an example of the so-called criminal Westerners. 
He dismissed the argument that no one had the right to take another's life with the curt response, you should tell that to the drug traffickers. Look, that's fair enough, seeing how drugs ruin the lives of so many people. Still, is the death penalty the right way to go about solving the drug problem? as it's not the kingpins that get caught, but the bottom of the chain drug mules that, mules that do. And there will always be a ready supply of them. Barbara Barlow, Sue Chambers, the mothers, and Michelle Barlow, Kevin's sister, were able to visit the condemned for about five hours on July the 6th, 1986, the day before the hangings. Barbara had actually prepared a suicide potion of 75 sleeping tablets dissolved in gin, whiskey and brandy and that she was able to sneak that into the prison by using a perfume bottle as a container. She planned on giving it to Kevin so that he could escape the hangman's noose. But during their meeting, she decided not to give it to him in case of a last-minute reprieve. There is a photo you can see of them leaving the prison after the visit. You just have to feel for them what must have been going on through their minds. Kevin and Jeff were only 28 and 29 years old at the time, and knowing that the next time you would see them they would be dead must have been so frustrating and so traumatising. So on the morning of July 7th, 1986, at Pudu Prison, after all the appeals had been heard and dismissed, Kevin Barlow and Jeff Chambers were blindfolded and their legs bound and a noose made of thick rope was slipped around each man's neck in the presence of a physician, a magistrate and the prison superintendent, the sole witnesses. Without warning, the lever to the trap door was pulled and it was all over. Bob Hawke, Australia's Prime Minister, condemned the execution as a barbaric act. He said, We've done all that we could to try and persuade the Malaysian authorities that, whatever view they had about the guilt of these two young men, it was a barbaric act to take their lives. Barbara Barlow said, My son's been murdered. I will fight to have the Malaysian government regret this barbaric act. So, there's a couple of things I need to tell you about in the aftermath of all this. First, before Barlow was hanged, he was interviewed by Australian Federal Police, and Ch- but Chambers refused. Anyway, he was interviewed and told them how he got caught up in all this mess. Out of this, in 1988, middleman John Archer was charged with conspiring with Barlow and Chambers to import the 179 grams of heroin. Archer, who denied the charges, was found guilty and sentenced to 10 years in prison. So, his karma bus landed at Boomfagalunga Station. Paul Massari would also be convicted of conspiring to import drugs in 1984 for which he received a 15-year term. And so his karma bus stopped at Boomfagalunga Station 
as well. And what I think is probably the most frustrating thing about this whole shit fight is that Malaysia has finally realised that the death penalty should not be mandatory for drug offences and will, although the death penalty is still available, make it not a mandatory sentence. Now, there's always going to be debate on whether or not there should be capital punishment. I did the Last to Hang series a few months ago about Australia abolishing capital punishment. There will always be that certain element that does something so heinous as to spark the capital punishment debate. But sometimes I think that the judicial system needs to make sure these types are never let out into society rather than to just kill them. So that's about it for tonight, Islanders. What do you think? They got what they deserved? Were they just a couple of dickheads that should have known better? Get on Facebook and let us all know. Look, tonight I want to give a super, super big hug and shout out to Maggie James, who's a great supporter of the island. And can we all give a shout out to Maggie tonight? Also, the Patreon supporters to the Islanders. A big shout out to Jason, who's been a long time supporter as well. Also, Marissa, Adam, Melissa and Brendan. Thank you so much. And of course, all donations go back into the island. If you want to become a patron of the island, just go to patreon.com forward slash true crime island, where for as little as a dollar a month, you can become a patron. Again, all funds go directly back to the island. You can also do a one-off payment via PayPal. And to do that, you go to paypal.me forward slash true crime island. If you want stickers or koozies, you just need to email me directly what you want, cambo at truecrimeisland.com, and I'll price it up for you according to postage. I've got a, just a few koozies left, but pins and key rings will be available soon, so maybe just hold off until I have those ready. All other merch such as t-shirts, hoodies, tote bags, mugs of rage and all that stuff is stuff is via the shop. That's truecrimeisland.threadless.com. Now, there's links to everything at truecrimeisland.com, the website. You can download or stream the episodes there. All the links that I said before, they're all on there. Again. You don't have to spend money to support the show. You can rate, review and share the love. More people who know about the show, the better. If people don't know what a podcast is, please show them the way. Don't forget Facebook, the Facebook group. Just search for True Crime Island and join in the chat. There's Twitter and Instagram. The island handle is at True Crime Island. You can join in the chat there. Look, there's plenty of other podcasts there, so you'll find someone and somebody to talk to. Don't forget True Crime Island is entered into the Australian Podcasts Awards, and you can vote for the island in the popular vote category. If everyone that listens votes for the island, and it is your island, I will get the opportunity to yell boom vakalunga to the whole world. 
go to australianpodcastawards.com, go to the popular vote link and vote for the island. It's your island. And it's you, the listeners, that make this island what it is. You do have to register to vote, but I'm sure you can sort that out. Now, also, I think time is starting to run out to vote. So if you haven't done so yet, please have a look. Guess what? I have a promo this week from my podcast friends at Blood on the Rocks. If you haven't heard this podcast, do yourself a favour and search for it on iTunes and your favourite podcatcher. That's about it for tonight. So, this has been Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Good night. Hello, and welcome to a promo for Blood on the Rocks, a podcast on all things creepy, morbid, or otherwise dark. I'm your host, Axel Taylor. Join me and various guest hosts as we cover a whole load of subjects. We'll show you the world of serial killers, accidents, hauntings, black metal, and more. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and all those other fancy podcast platforms. Our core and funny content may vary.